This is episode number 487 with Eric Weinmayer. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Welcome everyone to today's show. We've got Eric Weinmayer in the house who is the only blind person to reach the summit of Mount Everest. And in 2008, he completed the seven summits to the highest point of every continent. Eric's triumphs over some of the world's most incredible mountains were fueled from a growing aspiration to take the lessons he learned in the mountains to help others shatter barriers in their lives. And Eric co-founded a movement called No Barriers, and the mission is to help people with challenges to turn into the storm of life, face barriers head on, and embrace pioneering and innovative spirit, and team up with great people to live rich in meaning and purpose. And he also took on another crazy challenge in September 2014 when he kayaked the entire 277 miles of the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. And in this interview, we talk about how Eric sees with his brain, even though he is completely blind. What happens when you turn into the storm of life? Teaching your mind how to suffer and why this is so important. What's on the other side of our biggest barriers and how to navigate the pivotal moments of our lives. Such a powerful experience connecting with Eric, and I hope you guys enjoy this one as much as I enjoyed hearing his story. So without further ado, let me introduce to you the one, the only, Eric Weinmayer. Welcome, guys, back to the School of Greatness podcast. We have an incredible human being on the show in the Temple of Greatness today. His name is Eric <laughs> Weinmayer, and I'm super grateful that he is here. So thank you so much, Eric, for being here. Thanks for having me in. I'm very excited about this. You are 100% blind. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> does that mean, what does that mean you can and cannot see? It means I can't see anything, uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm not legally blind. I'm actually totally blind. What's the difference? Um, my friends uh, <laughs> to say I'm blind as a bat. Okay. I know that's not very politically correct, but, um, well, uh, you know, I can't see light or dark or anything. In fact, uh, I lost both my eyes to glaucoma several years ago. Um, and, but, but the interesting thing is that you actually don't see with your eyes. You see with your brain. So even though I can't see with my eyes anymore, my brain really is listening and touching. I'm touching things. I'm experiencing things, and my brain is still processing vision. Really? Yeah. Wow. So do you see images in your mind? I see it in my mind, yeah. Really? Like I'm listening to you and your voice right now, and I'm imagining you and your face and your hair. And this good-looking, handsome Yeah, exactly. Guy, right? I know you're tall, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. Amazing. So you're kind of like imagining an image in your mind, essentially. Yeah, because the visual cortex of the brain doesn't go dormant. You know, it's, it has to continue to do something. So, mm. uh, so it begins to process other uh, senses that are coming into the brain. So you almost have an advantage of that. You can create any image you want. <laughs> You're not limited to actually what people see. You can create any vision for yourself. Yeah, and also, you know, I, I, I probably notice different things. Mm. When I'm talking to somebody, I'm noticing things, uh, 
because it's not so I'm not distracted by by the visual piece of what they look like or mm. or you know I've, I I was a teacher for six years and uh, I used to love certain kids I loved all the kids but uh, I I would talk to a kid and he would you know he'd be so pleasant and su- such a great kid and then another teacher would say well you know he's like chubby and he picks his nose and I'm like ah. Oh, Why'd you tell me? That? <laughs> right, right. I don't want to know that. Yeah, you know, I, I, I like my image. Mm. <laughs> What's the? What are the things you notice the most when you either meet someone or you're having a conversation? What are, what are your senses telling you, or you, what are you looking for, through your senses? Well, I, I just try to be observant because as a blind person, when you lose your eyes, which are such a powerful sense, you get so much information through your eyes. Now you're trying to get beauty and information through your other senses. So. Uh, like when I'm uh, up uh, in the mountains on a big ice face, I'm taking my glove off. I'm feeling the beautiful ice sweeping down through my hand, feeling it just drop away into space. I'm listening to sound vibrations, uh, you know, spanning out through the through the valley, over the valley, bouncing off of things. I was up on a mountain one time, way up high, and I was listening to the valley, and this huge lightning storm hit. And every time the lightning cracked. I could hear this really crisp sense of the way the mountains looked all around me, and it was—it's just staggers you with beauty. Mm. Wow, what an advantage! It's what I have. So you find beauty, and you and you and you find joy with what you have, and you take, I think, whatever you have, and you kind of make it into an advantage. You know, you mm. make that that thing you have, that storm, that you collect that energy, and you use it to make your life great. Yeah. yeah. What? Um, so you had your sight when you were younger, correct? I did. I could see till I was fourteen. Fourteen. Yeah. Wow. Do you remember certain things that you used to be able to see? I remember a lot of things. I remember riding through the forest with my bike, and you know, trying to miss trees. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. I couldn't see very well. I remember jumping uh, uh, off of boulders with my friends into wow. big piles of leaves, and I remember uh, the way the 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 leaves turned golden in the fall, and I lo- I have a lot of beautiful memories in my mind. Um, when I when I finally went blind, um, I'm sort of a pragmatist though, and I and even though I knew I was going to miss those things, those visual things, what I thought I would, what what I was really much more scared about was being shoved to the sidelines. You mm-hmm. know, like not being in the thick of things. I remember sitting in the cafeteria. Uh, at school, like a week after I went blind, and I was sitting at a table by mm. myself and listening to the food fights. All these kids were in this massive food fight, and I didn't, you know, mind so much that I couldn't see it. But I, what I was really mad and upset about was that I wanted to be in the middle of that food mm. fight. Wow! So when you when you lost it, what was it like for you? When you know those first few days, was it you know heartbreaking, or was it just kind of like something you accepted right away, or how did you deal with that transition? Because that's a huge yeah, loss for people, I would think. So I was diagnosed with this rare disease, and they said there's no cure. I went to a round of doctors, and as a small kid, I knew I was going to go totally blind. Really? Yeah. Oh, so they told you this is going to happen? Yeah, but it's like somebody saying you're going to die in you know eight years. <laughs> like right. you don't, you don't like you try to block that out. The brain is incredibly powerful. So as I was losing my sight, I would just deny it. Mm. The brain's amazing. It can deny anything. It doesn't matter what the reality is. So my brain just completely, you know, I would be like, oh, I didn't eat enough breakfast or, you know, I, I didn't eat my banana this morning or 
um, like the light must be weird today or whatever. Your brain just can make up anything. So I just completely was in 100% denial until uh, that moment when I woke up and um, I, I, could, I, could, I couldn't see to take a step. Mm. And then I went, oh, okay, <laughs> this is wow. real. Wow. Uh, and I didn't really accept blindness either. Um, at, there was a little portion of time when I could see like double, like your brain just plays all these tricks trying to hang on to the little bit of vision that you have. Wow. And, I, and, it, and it started enabling me to see double, like I couldn't quite see where things were. They'd pop up in different spots. And I was walking down a dock and I could see two docks in front of me. I was trying to rush out there to swim with my friends. And uh, I went, okay, it must be the dock on the left. I'm just going for it. And I took a step into space, and I did a flip in the air. Oh and gosh. I landed on my back on the deck of a boat. Oh, man. And I went, oh, that was the wrong dock. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And so some of these things, when you go blind, you know, or something bad happens to you, of course, it's this balancing act of what you can influence and mm. what you can affect. But also, what are the things you kind of have to let go of? And you have to accept, and blindness was like that for me because once I accepted it, uh, my life got a lot better, and then I could push the parameters of of what I could do. Mm. Crazy man, this is amazing. What? Who was the most influential person in your life growing up? Then, well, obviously my parents. I was really lucky to have great parents. Mm. In fact, as I was going blind, my dad, um, I he he knew I loved to do things like I jumped my bike over this ramp at the bottom of my driveway. It was these wooden planks that I had set up and I'd fly through the air. It's kind of like in the eighties when evil Knievel was still big. Mm -hmm. And uh, my, my dad saw that I couldn't see the ramp anymore. I, I, it blended into the pavement. So instead of saying, you can't do that, which is the natural inclination of a parent, he painted it orange, like this really bright orange. Mm -hmm. So it contrasted the pavement and I could, jumped my bike over this ramp for probably another six months before I went blind. So mm. my my parents really instilled this idea of, of what I call no barriers now, but it's back then it didn't really have a name. And <laughs> the other person who really influenced me was this guy that I never met, uh, who I think about all, almost every day. And his name is Terry Fox. Uh, when I was going blind and I could see, see just a little bit out of my right eye, I I would press my face up against the screen. I could watch TV. I literally had static electricity at the end of my nose. I, that's how close I had to get. Wow. And uh, this guy was a Canadian, and uh, he lost a leg to cancer. So they cut off his his leg because it was cancerous, and uh, and then he made a decision to run across Canada. And like you know, this is thousands of miles. It's a marathon a day. Wow. And I thought, hold on a second. That is not the decision somebody in his situation is supposed to make like you're you know what you're supposed to do is like curl up in a ball and protect the little bit you have left and this guy said no way like i don't uh, that's not what i learned and i he you know he kind of understood that between the things that happen to you and the ways that you're supposed to react there's this space that you can operate in and he he chose to run and uh he he ran most across Canada and inspired a nation. I think I think I read that in the book uh, that uh, he he raised a dollar per Canadian, um, like a dollar for every Canadian uh, for cancer research. Wow! And, 
So he, was he like, never. He was like the original Lance Armstrong. He's right? the original stud. He's the original <laughs> grandfather right. of of dis- disabled sports, or however you want to look at it. Mm. Because, uh, and, and so he never finished his run. Uh, cancer came back, got into his lymph nodes. Oh man. Uh, and then, uh, but but it, so he but, ran with without losing the leg first. No, he ran after he lost his so leg. He lost the leg. So he had this clunky, on. clunky old prosthetic wow. leg. Not these fancy flex feet, right. you know, or anything like today. It was this clunky, herky jerky motion. The look on his face was one of the last images I remember, just full of exhaustion and exaltation, and it's all mixed together. And he's just running, and it was like it, it inspired everyone, and and as, including me because. I didn't even know at 13 years old what to call it, but like I was like, there's something inside that guy, hmm. and like I wonder if I have that in me. Like I would, I would, I would love to think that that exists in me, mm. and I hope it does. And uh, and so you kind of hope that when you turn into the storm of life, there's something that you can build and grow inside you, and use that to, I don't know, not. Not just survive because nobody mm. wants to just survive, but really get stronger and better. Wow! Yes, and the 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 concept you're talking about is called No Barriers, and you've got this book out called No Barriers, which I'm showing to the camera right now. Make sure you guys pick this up. It's a blind man's journey to kayak the Grand Canyon, but you've done so much more than kayak the Grand Canyon. You've been uh, on the top of every major peak in the world. <laughs> is that correct, or? Yeah, there's a lot of mountains out there, but I climbed what's called the Seven Summits, Seven the summits. tallest peak in every continent. Uh, so from Mount Everest to to Karsten's Pyramid, which is the tallest peak in uh, in New Guinea, to uh, Denali, which is the tallest peak in North America, to mm. Aconcagua. So it's been this great adventure to go around the world and climb mountains, and mm. uh, and including tons of rock and ice faces that no one's ever even heard of. <laughs> And there's a, there's a lot of great photos of you climbing these uh, mountains and ice cliffs and you know con- kayaking through the Grand Canyon. And there's a, a couple images of Kyle Maynard who's been on the show. Uh, he is born without arms and legs, and there's some great photos of him climbing the mountain. And he started climbing because of you. He came and started training with you. Is that correct? Yeah, I have this. I think it's an organization, but it's really, I think of it more of as a movement of no barriers. And so we held this big event called our summit and he came to one of our summits and it's really a celebration of how people with challenges break through barriers. Mm-hmm. And he uh, wanted to know how to climb. And we were like, you know, we had this great clinic where we were taking all these different people climbing, uh, blind people using trekking poles and bear bells. And we had uh, paraplegics that were cranking their way up the mountain with their with their arms on these special devices and uh, amputees that were using special crutches and uh, really cool devices and innovations. And then Kyle showed up, and I'm like, uh, I, don't, I mean, we're no barriers. But I don't know how we're going to get a guy without <laughs> arms, his arms into the elbows and legs into the knees. I don't know how we're going to do this. And so we kind of got together a group of wannabe engineers, some of Kyle's friends, some of our team. <laughs> right. And we went to his hotel room and we got uh, bath towels <laughs> and packing tape and uh, some foam at the front desk. And he, The images look very funny. They look like big clubs of like foam or something on his arms for the first images, right? Yeah, he could, bo- he could bop you in the face That's with one so of those. Funny. yeah. And we wrapped him around his stumps and he, uh, he, for the next like eight hours, he crabbed his way to the top of this mountain stood at the top of this 12,000-foot peak in Colorado. I was right next to him. I was behind him as he crabbed his way through 
mud and <laughs> snow and through boulder fields and and I just and believe it or not that was the day you know because you're always in these processes like you have these great dreams and honestly a lot of them sort of die in the recesses of the mind and that day uh, uh, I got to the top with Kyle and I thought okay I've been talking about this idea to kayak the Grand Canyon mm. like this I gotta do this this is not one of those ideas I want to like die a slow death in the in the in the periphery of my brain. Mm. So I, <laughs> yeah, so I saw that with, and I thought, okay, I'm doing Kyle. this. It you was because of Kyle. Wow. Yeah. And when did you do the? How long did it take to do the Grand the Grand Canyon? Well, the whole process was six years. Six years. Yeah. To kayak it or six years of training. Training. To and eight for years it. really oh. before you know of that moment when I spoke it out loud to the time that I did it, mm. and. You know, so I'd been climbing mountains. It sounds really crazy, but mountains were my comfort zone. Mm. I'd been climbing since I was 16. And at 40 years old, I found myself on this river and I'm learning how to kayak and I'm starting over. And I'm like, you know, mountains are supposed to prepare you for for your life. You know, for, you know, like climbing Everest, it's, it was supposed to make me ready for this great adventure. And I'm listening to the roar of the rapids below me. And I'm thinking, I'm not ready. <laughs> That's intimidating. Yeah. Uh, and and so it was six years. And there were tons of things to figure out along the way, uh, how to navigate, you know, for first of all, uh, and and how, how I would assemble my team around me. Mm. Uh, first of all, I, I just want to make sure people know that, like, I don't see myself as a crazy blind guy just taking massive amounts of risk. I really am very methodical about this process that I'm always trying to implement, uh, trying to build this amazing team of people around me. Uh, of course, there is, in any endeavor, there's a lot of flailing and bleeding, but uh, also trying to systematize things as best as I could, trying to kind of look, be, be like a, a scientist, you know, trying to pioneer mm -hmm. these ideas forward. And so developing how the person would be behind me and how they would guide me, what they would be yelling at me. Um, hard left, small right, charge into the rapids. Uh, and then the radio systems that we would use because wow. you're separated by 20-foot, 30-foot waves and you you can't hear. And so um, <laughs> I got this earpiece and a, we finally found this tiny little company out of the UK, like a mom-and-pop communication system that communicated through Bluetooth technology and in relative real time Yeah, and waterproof. That was amazingly hard to find. And finally, uh, we found that. And that was like kind of a game changer because then I could hear. I had this voice in my ear as I was charging through this absolute chaos. Wow. Crazy, man. So how long was the actual uh, time in the boat or the, the journey when you, you know, got yeah. in, the, in the Grand Canyon? It was 277 miles from... Um, uh, you know, all the way through the Grand Canyon. Wow. Grand Wash Bluffs is when you end this great canyon. And it took 20 days. 20 days? Yeah. How long would you go on for each day? You kayak about eight hours. Wow. Yeah, kind of six to eight, 10 hours a day. And at first, kayaking was so mentally tiring for me. Uh, of course, you're physically tired. But for me, there's always this training in the brain because you're exhausted. You know, I'm listening to this advice or not advice. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say advice. It's directions. Not, yeah. It's not like, it's not a choice whether you listen or not, you know, it's a, it's a command and you got to do it fast. And so, and if you're like a moment too late, 
you just get hammered. You know, you blast mm-hmm. into a rock, you go into a hole. If your boat is face temp degrees angled too far to the right, you're going into this area of the wow. river that you don't want to be in. So talk about a, having trust. Yeah, it's a lot riding on me and my guide to make the commands. So my brain would get just exhausted because I would be listening so hard and and so much pressure to like n- not make a mistake, which wound up being one of the hardest things about kayaking for me because uh, I I I had come from this environment of climbing where you could move slowly and and sort of very methodically bring uncontrollable thing situations into control. But it's, as I said, it's slow and methodical and you can stop and regroup. In kayaking, there was no regrouping. Mm. Hmm. How did you prepare mentally for this? How did you train yourself to say, listen, I've, you know, for this or for any mountain, you know, whether it be a mountain or the Grand Canyon or whatever it may be, how do you prepare yourself mentally for any major obstacle you're about to take on? As as you know, I mean, I, th- I think it's really cool, actually. It's a great question because it's like, well, yeah, there's the physical training. And, you know, like when I'm training for a mountain, um, I'm running up stairs. You know, like I'd run up the tallest building in, in Denver mm. with a big pack on, uh, just trying to make myself throw up, you know, just <laughs> as hard as I possibly could until you're just dizzy. Mm. And, uh, and so obviously there's, you know, getting in that mental or that physical state, uh, of, you know, being able to increase your VO2 max. Because mm-hmm. at, at high altitude especially, uh, there's not really enough oxygen to survive. They call it the death zone. So you're trying to, you're trying to stay just below that anaerobic threshold. And, and then there's the mental state. You know, there's a mental training, um, which is trying to take, as I said, these really uncontrollable situations and bring them under control, like coming down from the peak called Amada Blam, which was a year before Everest. Um, we were in this massive storm. We were stuck at 20,000 feet for eight days. And and then my team leader tried to get up and push up higher, and we couldn't. It was just like the wind was knocking us over. And, and we're like, we got to call this. Like, we got to go down Why we still can. So we packed up and we came down. This wind is picking you up and slamming you back against the rock. Um, there's the The whole mountain has changed now. It's like, glazed up with ice and snow. Um, it's really cold. Your fingers are going numb. Your toes are going numb. You're like, this is the time to panic. But there's no reason to panic because it doesn't help you. So you have to sort of do this mind thing where you're like, y- you teach your mind how to suffer <laughs> and, and, and you keep it at the surface. You're like, this is hopefully temporary. I got to stay disciplined in my brain. And... Um, and that was a huge adventure getting down that mountain. It mm. actually turned out my friend Erica Alexander uh, fell and uh, landed on this little ledge. And so he came back. We got him back up and got him on oxygen, got him down, had to get a helicopter um, oh. at base camp. Uh, he was really banged up, and there was a little break in the storm, and the helicopter swooped in. We had to put him in a gamo bag, which is a hyperbaric chamber that – um, brings you down to a lower altitude. So we pumped air into the bag for like 48 hours to keep the air, the oxygen in there. For, so, so he could, he could, you know, he could stay healthy. Mm. And anyway, we got him down. And then of course people were like, well, you guys had this massive disaster on Amada Blom. What makes you think you can climb Everest? And no, I, we were, I, I didn't see it that way. You know, we had had this, 
we had had many things go wrong on that experience, but all the mental training, all the team training, you know, it was like, it's it sort of, we had to go through that gauntlet as a team to uh, be ready for Everest. Mm. It was the greatest experience we could have had. Mm. You know, in some ways, when I'm uh, running or doing a hard workout or, you know, heck, I can barely climb Runyon Canyon, which is not that high. Uh, when I'm doing these small little, ex uh, you know, workouts and when I see the top and I'm constantly looking at how far away I am, it's actually mentally it creates more challenge for me, more discomfort. Yeah. Do you feel like sometimes you have an advantage when you don't have to like see how far you have to get to get to the top of certain elements in your life? that you can just be in the present moment one step at a time? Or do you feel like it's a disadvantage? Yeah, um, I think there are pluses and minuses there. Um, I remember Kyle saying that very same thing when he was climbing Kilimanjaro. He's like, I have this tendency of looking up and going, I got so far to go. <laughs> right. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I can't do that. Um, the, the Sherpas on Everest, they have a great quote and it's part of their sort of buddhist philosophy and i've tried to adhere to to it as much as i can and, and they say that the nature of mind is like water if you do not disturb it it will become clear and so when the way i think about climbing or even kayaking or a lot of parts of my life i try to understand that if you're, you're doing the things that you know why you're doing it. Like you're there. You've made that decision. You've gone through the process of, of, of second-guessing yourself mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. You're past that. Now, how do you let go of all that fear and distraction that, and chaos that really just weight? It just weighs you down, and it, and it sabotages you. Mm -hmm. And your brain sabotages you, and it calls you away from this thing and just because your brain wants to keep you safe. And, and, it, and it's sort of like these monsters that are like sort of pulling you away from everything you really want to do. And it's just to keep your, you safe. And it's like a, it's a genetic, uh, you know, dysfunction of the brain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and so if you can keep your mind clear, like still water, you know, and not allow it to get so muddy. And so that's the way I, that's the way I look at a lot of things that really that discipline of the mind that it's so hard to maintain. How do you keep your mind clear? Well, it, it really is like a muscle that you're training. And so um, I, I, I try to prepare as much as humanly possible. So if, like, for instance, the reason it took me six years to train for the Grand Canyon or half my life to train for Everest was because I didn't want to go on the fast track. You know, I don't think you learn much from, you know, squeaking by by the skin of your teeth. Like, you don't, you're not learning in the survival by survival. You're, you want to flourish in these environments. So six years, I was trying to train my brain to embrace this chaos, this crazy storm of energy that you're riding. You're trying to control some of it, but some of it you can't control. And trying to, trying to kind of go through that mind process. And then, um, and, 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 and it takes a while to be able to to, to do that, but you essentially you, with all that preparation, your your fear and all that distraction can kind of get replaced or get pushed to the periphery by and replaced by awareness uh, and replaced by focus and uh, and and you know it, it doesn't happen too often. But for instance, I was in the Grand Canyon. It was like 
day 16. And some rapids had gone well, some hadn't gone so well, but I went into this one rapid called Upset. And um, Harlan, my guide, he just said like, look, you're, you got to get your mind in this frame, in this mm-hmm. right frame of mind, because you, you're, you're still doing this thing where your brain is separate from the river, and you got to make them the same thing. You got to make your mind and the river one. You have to be experiencing this thing and not have this barrier of the brain. And, and because you're defeating the purpose of why you're here, mm-hmm. all that fear is just killing you. And I rode that rapid. I remember there was a massive waves just crashing against the walls to my left. To my right, I could hear this huge hole, just like guttural sound of this hole churning water down into the depths of the river. And I was squeaking this line right between. And I got through that, and I just remember feeling so weightless. Mm. Um, and, and so you're training for six years to get a minute and a half of that. <laughs> it's like an Olympian, you know? It's like an Olympian that trains for six to eight, ten years to yeah. have ten seconds yeah. or one minute on, you know, a gymnast one-minute routine or ten seconds in the 100-meter dash or something like that. You know, it's like your whole yeah. life essentially is training for a moment. But you're lucky. You're fortunate to feel that, mm-hmm. to get to experience that and be to to, uh, to to know that the brain in certain situations is like the impediment and, mm. you know, to get past that and just be connecting. It's really hard to do, and I think you have to keep working at it time and time again. But once you feel it, it's really – it's powerful. Mm. What do you feel about um, potential? What's your thoughts on potential? And do you feel like most people uh, never even get close to what they're capable of doing? And if so, Why? I do think people sometimes give up too soon because they're committed to a process, but then, you know, as they keep climbing, things keep getting harder. And then they, and all those barriers start turning into brick walls and they get shoved to the sidelines. And, and now they're, they're, they're camping out They're They're starting to maybe be stagnant, uh, you know, they, they're stuck and they don't, know how to, they don't know how to get back. And so I think it's really the barriers that people confront that shove them to that sidelines and, and kill their potential. And eventually that safe spot becomes habit and now you're stuck and you, you don't know how to get out. Uh, but I don't want to be an, like an elitist or a snob. I mean, it's not about climbing Everest or kayak in the Grand Canyon, but it is about something. It is about, you know, living in the current which is where the excitement and fulfillment of life is and not being stuck in the eddy. And so I do think, yeah, I do think people um, give up too soon, but it's not because they're quitters. It's because they just don't know how to, to break through that eddy fence into the current. And How, how do we break through? How would you well, teach someone? Well, what, what I learned through exploring the people that I did in the book, because the book was one, I mean, a narrative an adventure, which was fun to write, but it was also about looking at people. Like, see, I, I hadn't, I'd, I'd seen so many people, including family members, just stuck in that dark place. And, and I, and I felt like, you know, has anyone like illuminated the path that people take? And not like in movies and fictional mm-hmm. books, like not like in the movies where it's a nice crescendo, it's a nice arc upward, and then, you know, and then there's a violin music at the top, and then, you know, you tie the bow, and then everyone goes home. Like, 
who what's that map look like mm-hmm. and so look there there're thousands of elements to that process but for my map i try to look at even fundamental things that are that seem almost incredibly obvious but are really hard to do like we have a lot of folks like injured vets who come into our programs mm-hmm. and they've gone off on this journey and they've gotten broken and and like what's something fundamental that they lack they're sitting uh, in their basement, they're just they're, they they've served, they've led, they don't know how to get back into the, the thick of things. And uh, we say, like here, we'll build, help you build a rope team. In the mountains, you actually are tied to the people around you, so it's really cool because you know if you fall, everyone's got to stop you, or everyone dies. It's a great concept. <laughs> uh, and and so, how do you how do people build their rope team? So we'll mm. help build the rope team. We'll bring together all these soldiers and we'll say, this is your rope team. Okay, you maybe you weren't lucky to have a great family when you were growing up, but this is your rope team. And this is the group that will elevate you through your life. Uh, and teams just don't happen. You know, they're carefully, methodically built and we're going to facilitate that. And, and then you got to use that team. Uh, so I think building that team around you is essential. Mm-hmm. Uh, a central part of that map... I, I also think, I mean, there's several others, but I really think that another one that I found is so important, it's, it's bled into every part of my life, is this idea uh, I call it alchemy. And it's this thing that when you, these pivotal moments when these barriers pop up and, they, and, and you're stuck, how do you, do you allow that, that barrier to become the thing that stops you? Or do you kind of gather up the energy that is created through that adversity and, 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 and collect that and harness it and, and, and ride that energy forward. Uh, you know, maybe not to the place that you would have gone to, but maybe someplace brand new, maybe someplace you would have never gone uh, in any other way. Mm. And so I think uh, that alchemy process yeah. is something I try to teach people who go through our programs. Yeah. Uh, and, and and there's many more pieces I think of that map that are so counterintuitive. You know, they're not like the things that are logical. They're like Terry Fox doing the complete <laughs> opposite of what he was supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned about yourself since going blind? Well, when I was learning to kayak. I was doing really well. I was like learning my combat roles, like working through all these barriers. Mm -hmm. And then I went to this river called the Usumacenta. It was this giant river in Mexico and it was a great training, but there was a flood. And, you know, instead of being 40,000 cubic feet per second, it was 120,000 cubic feet per second. To give Mm -hmm. you perspective, that's like 10 times bigger than the Grand Canyon. Wow. And these whirlpools... Um, there's just a, like a torrent of water and I was still kind of a novice. And one of the things that happened when that much water is flowing down a Canyon is that these crazy things begin to happen. You don't even get why at first, like these things called vortexes, they're whirlpools. They swirl across the river and they move in these chaotic, unexpected ways. And they're, they can be nine feet deep. They grab the bow of your boat. They suck you down. And they rip you out of your kayak. They pull the sh- your shoes off from your feet. They're so strong, and they hold you down mm. for more than a minute under the water. Wow! And then they just disappear. And and 
then another one pops up. And I get in so over my head, uh, I couldn't get back into my kayak. I mean, mm. you know, I know like motivation is great, but I, it didn't matter how many motivational programs I listened to. I could not get back in my terrifying. kayak. Yeah. It was like, in a, you know, so our program, we work with all these folks with PTSD. And after that, I got this weird taste of PTSD. Like, I'm not saying I had it, but I definitely felt like I had trauma. I started having this dream um, where I was blind in my dreams. I'm, usually I can see in my dreams, but in this dream I was blind and I was getting sucked down the river and I had no guide. And I was, I was convinced that the river was going to like swallow me into nothingness. Wow. And I, could, I just couldn't get back in my kayak. My friend, thank God, that rope team, my, one of my guides said, hey, like, let's start over. And so it was, that was the greatest lesson that I've learned is that I couldn't go up. So, but I did have control. I could move backwards. So I decided, okay, I got to reprogram my brain. So I went back to the Whitewater Center, these man-made rivers that the, it's, we're so lucky to have in, you know, in 2017, like actually man-made rivers where you can go train. Mm-hmm. And I got on these baby rapids, these little rapids, and, and had to relearn the whole process again. I'd lost my role. Wow. I'd lost my confidence. Um, and so it took me about a year to really? rebuild. That's a lot to want to you know, go back and start basically brand new on something that you put a lot of energy into and you kind of lost confidence and you know, a lot of fear in, in ex- this experience. And then to recommit to a vision and say, I'm going to start from the bottom essentially and start one step at a time again, that's a hard thing to commit to. It was hard. And maybe people don't have time for that in their <laughs> yeah. modern world lives. Right. But it, it, for me, it was a great lesson because it was like, look, it's possible. Mm. Like you can say like, look, I don't have time or yeah. I'm on the fast track and, or I'm just, it's not worth it to me. Mm-hmm. But you can't say it's not possible because there is a way forward even if it's backwards right wow that's powerful and you have a family correct i do i have a wife and i have two great kids and what is that experience like because none of them are blind correct no my son uh is 14 and we were lucky to bring him home from nepal Mm. so it was great to climb a bunch of mountains and bring home a son that's That's not a bad bargain (laughs) Um, Nepal was in the midst of a civil civil war, uh, so we were going to these embassy appointments, trying to like go through this crazy, insane rigmarole of all the blue, all the red tape that we had to go through, mm-hmm. and all the p- appointments, and all the like letters that you have to get, and all the cr- just hundreds and hundreds of things <laughs> that you have to do, and trying to get to our appointments in the civil war, kind of low grade civil war, people protesting on the streets flaming bricks flying over your head, tires wow. burning in the street. And you're like, excuse me, mind if I get, if I step <laughs> around this and I got to get to this appointment. This is really important if you don't mind. Sure. And uh, two years, uh, we brought him home. But I remember in that process thinking, God, I wish, I wish the process was as easy as climbing Everest. <laughs> uh, it was harder for sure. Wow. And uh, there was a, a long delay where... Um, the Maoists took over Nepal, and we thought we'd never bring him home. Mm. Uh, and uh, but but we just kept sort of driving forward in every way possible. We 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 got to Nepal. We got positioned like ready for action once it happened. And 
and and and the process took almost two years, but we got this guy home, and wow. he's a he he plays uh, soccer, and uh, he he plays basketball and mm-hmm. he rolled he could roll his kayak at nine years old wow. and he can ski way better than i can which he likes to brag about <laughs> yeah i used to love bragging about being better than my dad and everything <laughs> once i got to a certain age and i could get bigger than him um what's the thing you're most proud of of all you've done you've accomplished and overcome and broken barriers on so many things what's the thing you're most proud of well i think the Sherpas on Everest, they have this cool thing that they say, and they say the, the, uh, that when you reach the summit of Everest, only halfway summit, like not the real summit, and they mean you got to get down. Uh, and I've ex- interpreted that, though, beyond that, and I think it's like, yeah, you, you know, you're not climbing these things or kayaking rivers as escapism, but you, hopefully, ideally, you're taking these gifts down from the mountain that you've earned through struggle, through that flailing, through that bleeding, through that sense of self-discovery, that path that we're all on, and we use it in some ways. And so for me, coming home from those mountains and starting No Barriers, and it was just started at first with a bunch of dirtbags, like myself, (laughs) climbing dirtbags. One of them is a friend of mine named Mark Wellman, who's a paraplegic. He can't he he has no movement from the waist down. He climbed El Capitan, that three thousand foot uh, granite face. Um, he 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 did it by doing seven thousand pull ups in eight days. Oh my gosh! The third That's crazy. Yeah, and the third guy is this guy Hugh Her, who's a double leg amputee, and he was another dirtbag. But he was he had an engineering mind, and he he said he looked down at where his legs were supposed to be because he had lost his legs in a climbing accident and for a long time had loss. And he looked down where those legs were supposed to be and he said he saw a blank canvas. And so he, he went back to his garage. He started building legs with these, their tiny little legs with like feet. Imagine they're tiny. They look like a doorstop. Huh. And they can, he can wedge them into seams. No human foot oh, could even wow. stand up. With. He became a way better climber huh. than when he had legs. He's actually now the head of biomechatronic laboratory at MIT. He builds like $62 million prosthetic legs. That's pretty cool. But back then he was just a PhD student. And um, it was, so the three of us climbed Mm -hmm. this tower in Moab. I carried Mark down the trail. Hugh led. We got to the top of this tower. And uh, I think that was the beginning of No Barriers for me. I thought, like, what is it inside those guys? Mm. Like, can you, is there something you can take out of them and export it into others so that we're mm-hmm. like, maybe there's a way to better equip all ourselves for that journey that we're on so that we emerge on the other side, not broken, but change or grow, grow, growing or even transformed. Although that's, that's a big word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what do you say is the big barrier for you next, uh, overcome or breakthrough? You've, you know, had overcome so many things. What's the next thing? For me, it's committing to change, like and and sort of. Uh, I have a really fulfilling life. I have a busy life, but like I'm sort of like in the same boat as everyone, where there's dozens of things I would like to do. Like I would be a, like to be a better technologist. Mm. There's a lot of amazing technologies out there that I would like to spend more time experimenting with. And uh, for instance, there's a really cool uh, uh, new device called Ira that is a 
works on Google Glass technology, and uh, I can call up an agent. He or she is around the world, and they can see through the camera. No way. Yeah, and they can talk you Tell through. Tell you what's going on. The, or, yeah. Oh like, so gosh. the other day, That's cool. I used it when I was on the Stairmaster in the gym, and it broke down, it could, I, this, and I can't see the screen. And I, and, I, and I called up this agent, and I said, help me start this machine again. Wow. She's like, yeah, move your butt, finger to the right and push that. There you go, the start button, and here's the, you know, the, the resistance. Cool. So, yeah, just having more time for these important things. Mm. And we get so distracted, and we, we take, you know, it's so easy to take the path of least resistance. And, like, what I learned from a lot of the characters, a lot of the people I studied in the book was that the path of most resistance – and this isn't like a motivational statement or anything. It's just like a, it's a reality that the path of most resistance is sometimes the, the, not the direction you want to go, but it's, it's the thing that where you grow and learn the most. It's this crazy dichotomy that like you, you know, like when you're kayaking, you don't want to be off the line. You don't want to be in the chaos, <laughs> but that's where you learn the most. So it's a balancing act. Mm. And that's the biggest barrier for me, just trying to figure out how to have, to change my own habits so that I spend more time on the important things that I want to devote my life to and not just reacting and responding, which mm -hmm. is what we probably do, I don't know, 80, 90% of our lives. Sure, sure. Powerful. Uh, a few questions left for you, Eric, and I'm really grateful you came on. Hmm. What is a uh, a non-negotiable for you every single day that you must do, either a routine or a habit or something that you you need to do every day to prepare yourself? I what, what one of the things I do, and I and I've heard a lot of your guests say this, so it's mm -hmm. it's kind of a universal thing I think for all of us, is to wake up sort of with gratitude, mm -hmm. uh, like. You know, blind guys don't climb mountains alone. <laughs> blind guys don't kayak the Grand Canyon alone. I've it's I've I've ridden on the shoulders of amazing people. Mm. People have devoted their lives to me. Uh, they could be doing a lot of things. My friend Rob Raker, for instance, um, in the middle of our kayaking six-year process, he gets diagnosed with stage four prostate cancer. Mm. This means your time on Earth is concrete. Like it's not forty years. It may be a lot less. Yeah. And he continued to guide me down the mountain despite the fact, or down the river despite the fact that he was on ADT, androgen deprivation therapy, stripped away all his testosterone. Wow. He was sick. He was in diapers having it, you know, in his kayak because he had no bowel control, but he was guiding me down the river. And wow. So I wake up with gratitude every day for that amazing people in my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah. If you had one minute of perfect eyesight and you could be anywhere in the world or see, be in front of anyone or experience anything and you had a, a minute or a, or a few moments, let's say, yeah, what would you choose to see with your eyes? So I don't miss seeing mountains or... Uh, rivers, I've experienced those things. I've saw, I've seen them in a, in my own way, and that's great. Mm -hmm. So I don't have any regrets there. I will say though that faces. I remember when I could see just a little bit, like looking down through the window with some binoculars and seeing people's faces, like walking down the streets and going, "Whoa, 
That is crazy to look in people's faces and look into their eyes. Mm. Uh, and so I would love to see my kids. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say this, because that probably won't happen for me, and that's I'm okay with that. I can live with that. I won't see their faces. But uh, there's another amazing device that I've worked with uh, that I write about in the book that's based on neuroplasticity, and that's uh, the brain port. It's a camera that takes a picture of an image, and then that gets sent through a microprocessor that then sends electrical stimulation to my tongue. No way. So essentially, my tongue is the, the images that the camera is seeing, the light and dark images, the contrast is being projected onto my tongue in this electrical stimulation. And so um, I've used the device to just stare into my kids' faces. Really? Yeah. And it's crazy because you're, <laughs> you're looking at their, you're feeling their face, like, you know, their cheeks. Like, my, wow. I remember my kid telling me jokes and he's telling me these great jokes and his, and his cheeks lift up and his smile just consumes his face and his eyes, I, I mean, I, like some of it's in your, in your mind, but I could have sworn I felt his eyes twinkling. Right. It was good. I'm it was sure. good stuff. That's cool, man. Yeah. That's very cool. Uh, this is a question that I ask at the end. It's called the three truths. Yeah. So if this was the last day for you many years from now and you've achieved everything you wanted to, you've written all the books, you've said all the things you want to say, uh, but you only get to share three lessons left to the world. Yeah. For, for whatever reason, this is all that people would see of your work left are these three truths you write down on the paper. What would you say are your three truths? Well, first, I mean, we spent some time today talking about this map that we're all building. It's All our maps are slightly different, but there's also some universals to that map that we're building. But I think fundamentally, maybe it comes down, the truth is that it comes down to a choice that we make. Um, you know, are, are we okay sitting in that semi-self-induced prison? Mm. We put ourselves in that prison. Are we okay with it? Most of us aren't. Uh, so it, it, there is a fundamental sense of courage just to say, oh, I'm not okay with that, and I'm going to find a way to break through, and I'm going to be in the current. And that's where the excitement, that's where the joy, that's where the, the fulfillment, that's where the discovery is, mm -hmm. but it's scary as hell. Yeah. Uh, so it's one, a choice. Mm -hmm. And I think the second truth is this idea of courage. And one of our soldiers in one of my No Barriers programs told me this. I'm blatantly stealing it because I love it so much. <laughs> he said that uh, courage is not a state of being. It's a, it's a choice. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a choice that we're making constantly. And so he said what he tries to practice every day is this insignificant acts of courage. You know, like maybe it's, um, maybe it's, it's wearing that shirt that you you know everyone makes fun of, but you love it. Um, maybe that tank top, you know, mm -hmm. that's gone out of style. <laughs> or maybe it's uh, uh, having a beer instead of a co uh, a coke instead of a beer. Mm -hmm. Or maybe for me, when I was hard, couldn't get back in my kayak, it was just um, sitting in my kayak. It was in my garage. I would just sit in my kayak. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, those insignificant acts of courage lead you to those moments when great courage is required and then you're ready. So it's like a brain, it's like a muscle in your brain that you're training. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a truth for me. I think about that all the time. Yeah. Wow. And maybe the last one is, um, have fun, you know, um, I call it suffer well <laughs> because in any great endeavor, there's suffering. 
So my friend Chris Morris, he's this great adventurer, but he's hilarious. He's from Alaska. And you'll be sitting in this terrible storm, hammering wind in your face. You're miserable. Your hands are cold. You're eating, like, gross food with rocks in it, you know? Right. And he'll say, uh, sure is cold out here, but at least it's windy. (laughs) (laughs) Or we've been climbing a long way, but at least we're lost. Right. And I love that. It's like, yeah, life is suffering, but you got to, like... You gotta ride that suffering and 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 know that it's for a good purpose. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's and also it's a way to say like, hey, I, I, we own it. It's a hard road, but I always own that road. Yeah, no matter what. And so Chris has helped me understand that through those uh, the, that his philosophy. He calls them positive pessimisms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, thank you for sharing those. Yeah, so throw throw some positive pessimisms out. <laughs> Perfect. Um, the book is No Barriers, A Blind Man's Journey to Kayak the Grand Canyon. A lot of great meat, storytelling, content in here. I think you guys will love this one. Make sure to pick it up. Eric, before I ask the final question, I want to acknowledge you, my friend, for, for showing up the way you do. Because not many people who have eyesight are willing to put themselves and break through the barriers that they have. And you're willing to do so much more than most people with no sight because you have incredible vision, my friend. So I acknowledge you for all that you do to show up passionately with love, joy, playful, curious, and willing to commit six, eight, ten years to make something come true, not trying to take the fast track, uh, but really making sure you're prepared for something great. So I acknowledge you for that. Thank you. Yeah. And the final question is, what is your definition of greatness? Well, I think, one, as I've said before, it's not about climbing Everest. It's not about, um, you know, blind people or people missing legs or whatever, like doing big things. You know, that's, you know, that that can actually become sort of shallow. I, mm-hmm. I just think it's greatness is people living, you know, fully living fully experiencing that sort of storm that we're all riding and and committing to it like you just mentioned committing to that to that life hmm. and 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 not allowing themselves you know, look look I don't care if people climb mountains or climb scary rock faces but like I I met somebody the other day who said yeah like I tried whitewater rafting and my boat flipped and ever since then I could never get back into the river again. Mm. And that was a physical thing. I mean, that was a concrete thing. But I thought, what a shame to be driven by your fears. Mm. And so I'd say, you know, not being driven or demotivated or even influenced by our fears. It's not like we're reactionary. We're trying to like just confront our fears and do things just because we're scared. Then I think that's just as shallow. Mm-hmm. But but at the same time, not being controlled by those fears mm. and and all those crazy little things that our brain d- do to us. Yeah. Um. For for me, that's that's what greatness is. Mm. And if and if you're truly committed and engaged in life, uh, to to whatever your vision is, then I'd say that's great. You know, it, it's it's a, it's impossible to define it in terms of a something. Yeah. 
I love it. Well, Eric, you're a great man. Thank you so much for being on here. The book is No Barriers. If you guys go to touchthetop.com slash greatness, you can get some more information about the book and some more goodies at your site, which is touchthetop.com slash greatness for more about this stuff here. Eric, thank you again for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you, Lewis. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this one. And make sure to share this with your friends, lewishouse.com slash 487. If you felt moved or inspired in any way, then share it out on Twitter, Facebook, or tag me as always on Instagram at lewishouse when and where you're listening to these episodes. We've got some big interviews coming up, so make sure to subscribe to the podcast if this is your first time here and stay tuned for what's to come. It's going to be a great week on the School of Greatness podcast, and you know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great.